0: The following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Thank you, everyone. Matthew chapter 3. Even though I just told you to turn there, why don't we bow our heads and, and pray in response to that song. Things a little out of order, but I feel like it's the right thing to do. Lord, this is our prayer that you show us Christ. I am reminded even as we sing of the pure folly that is preaching because there's absolutely nothing that I have to say this morning that is of any value whatsoever apart from your word. And so... Lord, even in this study we're doing right now, just trying to understand the apostles, who these men are, part of the larger desire we have to understand Mark's gospel and to understand the gospels as a whole, it is in the end, remind us of this, Lord, help us to remember and, and understand this and embrace this deeply, it is in the end to understand you. And so, Lord, this morning, even in the midst of the things we're looking at, will you show us Christ, help us to see him, and in seeing him, to be made like him, be driven more to his feet, God, I pray that that will be the constant prayer of our hearts in all things. So We give you this time, and we ask again, please show us Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Now you can finish turning to Mark 3. While you're turning, I'll give you a also a quick update, just because we haven't uh, given you one here in a little bit, on Walk for Life. Uh, if you don't know what Walk for Life is, then you haven't been listening on Sundays, because we've been talking about it regularly here. It's uh, our effort to get behind Crisis Pregnancy Center of Tidewater and support them via their Walks for Life. They have three. They had one yesterday that some of us went to. Got another one coming up this uh, Saturday, I believe, at the Boardwalk, and then another one in three weeks, two weeks at the uh, Virginia Zoo. So I wanted to show you something that made me pretty excited in relation to this. Um, I'll just put it up here, and I'll let it speak for itself. I don't know if you can see it. We'll zoom in. Look who's number one. Look, look, here's the deal. I'm not a competitive person. I just always like winning, okay? That's how I like to think of it. So uh, I've been pretty excited this week. We were number one, though I will say those wretched Virginia Beach Community Chapel people are like nipping at our heels there. Nothing against them, I'm just being silly. But uh, I was encouraged by this. As you can see, we got 14 walkers. Uh, six thousand one hundred nine dollars raised so far. That is a record for us. Okay, we've never raised this much money, so we're we're really encouraged by it. And while it's not a competition, I get that. Um, you know, we would like to win. That would be cool. I'm just saying. So I got I've got three three things for you in relation to this. Okay, just as our kind of we're. In the middle of it still, okay? Even though one walk is over, we're still in the middle of this thing. Don't forget, okay? So three things for you. Number one, if you're walking and you haven't yet signed up online telling people that you're walking, that's today's number one job after the service, okay? You go home and you sign up online because we want to have a full count of everyone who's walking here uh, with Cornerstone. So that, that's number one. Number two, if you are walking, if you've signed up, then you need to go in there and you need to list. All of your donations online because that's the way our number keeps going up, and we keep staying in first place, okay, so don't have them just on your sheet and you're gonna turn it in later. I know it's the same thing in the end, but this is important too, okay, so so put everything there I'm being a little facetious, and number three, if you're not walking and you haven't given to someone yet, okay. Today's your day. That's your day for doing that, all right? To make a donation to somebody. Don't care who. Really don't. Just just make a donation. Um, I, here's everyone that I'm aware is walking. Then if I don't list you, I'll give you a moment to, to raise your hands. So people know it. But uh, Hannah Potts, my Hannah, Shell Hearts, Grace, Aaron, Beth, Manahan Family, Jordan, Desiree, Rebecca Morgan, Amy Mock, Amy Middlebrook, and Matt and Rachel Hornbeck. Who am I missing? Who else is walking that's not currently Someone needs to go sign up. Uh, Ashley is walking. Anyone else walking? All right, so those are your people. If you haven't given, find one of those people and give to them. And uh, just very exciting. Toby yesterday, he probably is going to say this at each walk, so I'm about to steal his thunder if you're walking, sorry. But he made an interesting point that I was not aware of. I was aware of a part of this, but not the whole thing. He said that last year during one of the walks for life, like during the walk, that time period that we were walking, one of the abortion clinics in Hampton Roads closed down during that time. Now, that was coincidence, probably divine coincidence in my opinion, but it was coincidence. Like They didn't close down because of the walk, but, but business was drying up. I remember when this hit the, the pilot last year that they were closing down. It was the oldest abortion clinic in Hampton Roads, and it shut down just because they didn't have enough work to do. Um, so that's exciting. That's encouraging, and we want to continue to be a part of this. And so, so help us be a part of this. Help Crisis Pregnancy Center. Cornerstone, by the way, gets nothing for being number one. Just so you know, I'm not, like, gunning for something secret here. But I'm just encouraged that, that your hearts and our hearts together are behind this ministry and, and really excited about what God is doing there. So let's keep it up. You're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to read verses 13 through uh, 19, and we'll get our time together in God's word, if you will. Go ahead and look down at verse 13. Notice that Mark says that he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Okay, So if uh, you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know what we're doing. We're just continuing to work through our study of the apostles here. We took a couple of weeks just to try to get a general, high-level understanding of who these guys are, what they're doing. Uh, why they're important within the context of Mark's gospel, within the context of what Jesus is doing, even in his larger plan of building his church and growing his kingdom and spreading his kingdom. And we've continued that study of the apostles by taking a little bit of time to just walk through and look at the lives of these individual guys so that we can just understand who they are. Because outside of like Peter and maybe James and John who we're looking at today, we really know anything about the vast majority of the apostles? Um, don't answer that. The, the other morning in our, our, our community group, our men got together and we were, were for our discipleship time. And so I issued a little challenge um, to Al. Al was my guy. Sorry, I'm not picking on you. just came to mind. And I said, can you name all 12 apostles? Go. And he did pretty good. You got what? Eight. How would you do? Maybe not even that good. I'm even struggling to try to name them all. I'm like, is Thaddeus and Lebeus the same guy? or th- I end up with like 18 apostles when I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, here's Luke and Matthew and like some guy named Joe. And I don't like it 's hard sometimes to keep all these guys straight because we just haven 't really ever taken the time to understand them, and yet they're they're critical to a right understanding of the gospels they're main characters in the stories, and they 're going to be main characters throughout the rest of the time in the new testament and so and so we're trying to just walk through here and understand them a little bit uh, two weeks ago. We looked at the first two, Peter and Andrew, these two brothers from Bethsaida originally moved to Capernaum. They've got a fishing business going on. They become followers of Jesus, then disciples of Jesus, and eventually apostles of Jesus. And we, some of you may know or remember, we we looked and we saw that Peter is, as he is commonly referred to, the, the bold, brash one, right? He's the one that MacArthur aptly describes as the apostle with the foot shaped mouth right because that's just kind of what he does he, he speaks first thinks later and, and so you see him working in that realm he becomes kind of the leader of the group and i put the word leader there in quotes because i don't know that he's actually their leader but he's certainly the primary spokesperson and he's always listed first in the in the gospel accounts when he's talking when they all are listed his brother andrew seems to be very different if you remember that, he's much quieter at least. We don't hear as much from him. Um, every time you see Andrew operating on his own, do you remember what he's doing? Does anyone remember this? He's bringing someone to Christ. He brings, he, he's one of the first ones to meet Jesus. when he's, he's still a, uh, Andrew's still a disciple of John the Baptist, and here comes Jesus, and, and John says, look, behold the Lamb of God. And Andrew follows him and says, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. And what's the first thing he does? He goes and gets his brother. And then later you see him bring others to Jesus over and over again. He's the one who finds the the boy who's got the, the fish and the bread to, to bring to Jesus so that he can multiply them and feed the 5,000. This is kind of Andrew's thing, what you see of him at least in the Gospels, but honestly there's not a lot about him there. Both of these guys, though, we saw on their own are nothing, though, right? I mean when you look at their lives, you look at their background, you look at their families, you look at everything about them, you see it over and over and over again they're nothing. And yet they're with Jesus, right? And Jesus takes these nobodies and he uses them as, the writer, as Luke says in Acts, to turn the world upside down. and that's been our encouragement, why we were studying these guys. We want to understand them because I want Jesus to turn the world upside down with us, maybe turn Hampton Roads upside down at least. I, 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 We're nobodies, but we're looking at how God used other nobodies for some amazing, amazing things, and so this has been an encouragement to us, and today we're going to keep this study going. Today we're going to look at the next two apostles, another set of brothers here, James and John, and next to Peter, we know the most about these two guys, and so just like last time, I'm going to work us through a number of details here, just Try to help you get a picture of who these guys are so that you'll understand them a little better. And then in the end, we're going to turn our hearts and our focus back to Jesus because he's what we should really be looking at this morning. So let's consider James and John. Let's start with their family. Now, I'll start with their father. Their father is a guy named what? Zebedee. Don't, don't, be, don't, don't be hesitant. What's their father's name? That was way better. So Zebedee, and you, you see him referred to this way even here in Mark chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where it's James, the son of Je- Zebedee, and, and John, his brother, and they're regularly referred to this way as sometimes just the sons of Zebedee. It doesn't even give their names. And when you think of that and you look at what little we know about Zebedee, you realize that there is a very good possibility that he may have been a man of some significance, some wealth, some influence there in Galilee at least, but maybe even in Judea as a whole. You get this idea from a number of little comments that were made. For example, in Mark chapter 1, when we first met James and John, here in Mark's Gospel, Jesus is walking along the sea there, he says in verse 19, and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boats mending the net. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with who? With, with the hired servants, and followed him. And so you get this picture that that whatever fishing business Zebedee's got going here with his sons, it's not just a family business. It's something a little bigger than that, and they may have had a little bit of, of wealth or a little bit of influence. Not only that, but, but later on, much later on, right at the very end of Jesus's life, after he's been arrested, they take Jesus to the, the house of the high priest. And, and who goes with him into the house of the high priest for the trial? Do you remember? Who? John and Peter. But, but no one ever mentions John. Normally we think about, about uh, the trial of Jesus there in the house of, of Caiaphas and Annas. As he's there, we think about Peter because Peter is known for his his denial at that point. But do you realize that the only reason Peter got into that house at all is because of John? If not for John, there would have been no story of the denial. And you read this in John chapter 18, verses 15 and 16. John writes that Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. And I'll pause. This is one of the marks of John. He never mentions himself in his Gospels, ever. He's another disciple. He's, he's always listed very vaguely. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved. He's, he's always going to say it in some way that doesn't ever name him or draw attention to him. And so we're pretty sure, almost 100% sure, that this is John here. I feel confident it's John. So Simon Peter follows Jesus, and so did another disciple and Since that disciple John was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest but but Peter stood outside at the door. so the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and and brought peter in and and the question is, how is he known to the high priest? He's a fisherman, right I mean what's John? They don't know Peter. When the Peter gets there, he's kept outside. So John goes in and like, wait, this, this guy's with me, right? Come on, you come on in, you're with me. And so now Peter gets in and the whole rest of the scene that we're familiar with unfolds from there. If John hadn't done that, there would have been no denial. So maybe John shouldn't have done that, right? <laughs> you ever feel that way sometimes? Like, oh, if only John had left him outside, maybe it would have been better for Peter, but, but he doesn't. Somehow John is known and, and most people think that, that it's probably not because of John himself, but it's likely because of his family, because of his father, Zebedee, that he has some influence or somehow is known, whether because he's a wealthy man or an influential man, or even maybe perhaps because he's a Levite by, by tribe. We don't know. That's listed somewhere in church history that that might be true. Th- this is who this guy is. And so Zebedee is going to be a name you see a lot in the Gospels because that's how these boys are known. They're the sons of Zebedee. We know a little bit about his mother, at least we think we do. And we get this from looking at the list of women who are around the cross at Jesus' crucifixion. And if you've been here in the past when I've done this, then I'm sorry. I'm going to repeat some things I've said before. But it's, oh, whoa, go back. Oh, well, there you go. There's a little bit of it up front uh, because I can't get it to go back. It's just going on. That's going to work on it. Uh, You see it from the list of women who are looking around the cross at Jesus' crucifixion. And there's three lists as you may have seen very quickly behind me. Very quickly, you got Matthew 27 verses 55 and 56. You got Mark chapter 15 verse 40, and you have John chapter 19 verse 25. And so you've got these three lists. And just leave it there. Can you stop it right there? There you go. Perfect. If you look at these lists, because that's nowhere near where I wanted to be, but that's all right. It's continuing to go. So everyone, where do demons live? And technology, they left uh, people and they moved on to technology. So if you look at these lists, you see that, that Matthew, Mark, and John all list a number of women who are around the cross. They'll work it out in a minute. Don't worry about it. Uh, they all list a number of women who are around the cross. Matthew lists three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay, Those are the three women listed around the cross by Matthew. In Mark chapter 15, 40, he also lists three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph, and a woman named Salome, okay? Gives a name this time. He doesn't list her as the wife of anybody. He just names her. Luke doesn't give any information about women around the cross. I think he may mention that there's some there, but he doesn't, doesn't say who or how many. And then John lists four women around the cross. Is it fixed? Oh, there we go. Mary Magdalene. There we go. omits. Um, there we are. Perfect. It's back. John lists four women there around the cross. Mary, Jesus's mother, so I didn't put her up here because we all know who she is. A woman that he simply describes as Mary's sister, Mary Magdalene, and then Mary, the wife of Clopas. These are the, the women that John lists around the cross. Now, before I go any further, let me just Point something out from a so, so that I am not misrepresenting anything or misleading you in any way. It is possible that each of these gospel writers are thinking about a different group of women around the cross, who are around the cross. Okay, so maybe there's like six women around the cross, and each of them are listing out maybe the, the top three. Okay. Whatever three Matthew liked best, these are the three he lists. And whatever three Mark likes best, these are the three. And whatever three John likes best, these are the... Okay, we don't know for sure how many women are gathered there around the cross. But it's interesting that apart from from Jesus' mother, they each only list three. And so if that's true, that there are only these three other women who are there around the cross, well, then you learn some things just by simple process of deduction, right? You can cross Mary Magdalene off of each list because we, we see her, she's listed three times, so that's easy to identify. We can li- cross off the second one because this is clearly not the uh, mother of James and John. This is the mother of James and Joseph, and she apparently is also the wife of a man named Clopas. But that leaves a third woman listed each time. In one place, she's listed as the mother of the sons of Zebedee. In another place, she's listed as Salome. And in another place, she's listed as Mary's sister. So that means that Mary's sister could be named Salome, who happened to be married to a man named Zebedee, who had two children named James and John. Therefore, they're cousins of Jesus. Did you follow all that? I know it's a lot, but, but just by simple deduction, you, you begin to put that together. We can't be 100% certain, but it, it it may explain a number of things that we see in the gospel accounts and therefore give us a better understanding of some of what's going on. For example, it may explain why John, our apostle John, was an early follower of John the Baptist. I'm not saying it's that you had to be a relative of John the Baptist, because remember, if he's a cousin of Jesus, then he's He's probably a cousin of John the Baptist too, but it may explain why he's an early follower of him uh, or nephew, he may be a cousin, he might be a nephew, he might be something else, who knows. It may explain more of why Jesus chose them and brought them into the inner circle because it's, it's the friendship of James and, and John with P, uh, Peter and Andrew that are going to bring those four together and they ultimately then will become part of that inner circle. Remember, Jesus is going to have these four guys as part of that inner circle more than the other 12. That may explain some of that. It may add a little bit of insight into James and John's request to be seated on Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom, something I'll talk about more in a moment. But you think about the, the gall of that request, right? Here comes, here comes their mother to Jesus saying, look, Jesus, I want you to do something for me. What do you want? I, I, I want you to let my boys sit on your right and left hand side. Well, who asks for that kind of thing, right? Family. That's the, my joke there. They all yeah, Our family would, if it was my family or Jamie's family, that, that totally makes sense in, in terms of the way we experience family. I can It may add a little more insight into that. It may explain why John also, in his list of the women, doesn't give any info about Mary's sister, right? because he never draws attention to himself in his writing. It may be why he simply referred to her as Mary's sister instead of giving a name. He wouldn't give his name if he was referring to himself. It may explain why Jesus gave his mother to John there in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, if you remember that. He's hanging on the cross, and he looks down, and, and John's the only one still there of the, of the 12 apostles. Never forget that. Everyone else is gone, but John is standing there at the cross with the women, and he sees John, and he says, "'Behold your mother, woman, behold your son.'" It would be very weird in that culture to entrust the care of your of your mother to a non-family member. And so it may make sense as to why he gives her to John and not to someone else. And it may even help explain why James is the first apostle to be martyred, which we'll look at more in a moment. But but when Herod, Herod in Acts chapter 12, wants to make the Jews happy, he goes and he kills an apostle. And just by pure logic, who would you think he'd kill first? Peter, right? I mean... Peter's the one who's out. Peter's the one who stood up and preached on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people are saved. Peter's clearly a big name, but he kills James first. And so the question is, why? Well, there could be multiple reasons, and I'll give you another one in a minute, but, but it, part of it, at least could be, is because James is a, a close relative and a follower and an, a disciple and an apostle of Jesus, and everybody knows this. And so by going after James, he's going after the family. First, is that I, again? I'm not saying 100% for sure that, that James and John are cousins of Jesus. I couldn't say that if I wanted to. I'm simply saying to you there is at least evidence that that may be the case, and that may explain a number of other things here that we see throughout the Gospels, and just help us understand the story a little bit better. It doesn't make them more important. It just just helps us understand the story a little bit better. This is what we know about the family of James and John. What we know about their home and their occupation, well, not much. We know that they lived in or around Capernaum. And as for the occupation, you already know that. They're fishermen, right? They're working for dad in the family business. They're in Capernaum. We know they're part of the inner circle. Uh, They're one of the Always listed in the group of first group of four apostles that you see in the list. These two brothers here, these two sets of brothers, they're all there together with Jesus. And so, as part of the inner circle, they get to be. Uh, witnesses to and a part of some of the most amazing things that happen in the gospel stories, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter in Mark 5. They get to be there for that and see that. Jesus leaves the other guys outside for the transfiguration, Matthew 17. They get to go up on the mountain with Jesus and and see him transfigured before them. That They get to be there in Mark 13 and question him about future events there on, on, on the Mount of Olives. What's going to happen, Lord? And he answers their questions. They get to go with him into... Garden of Gethsemane, and be with him and fail him while he prays before his crucifixion, Mark 14. They're they're a part of some of the most amazing stories of the Gospels. That's just one of the benefits these guys get. They're known by another name as well. Jesus only gives names to three of the apostles. He gives Peter his own name, right? He originally is Simon. He becomes Cephas or Petros Peter, but he gives a name to these two boys as well, and it's Boanerges. Here in Mark chapter 3, you see it. To, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, these sons of thunder. And Mark's the only person who records this. The only one. No one else makes any reference to this. Just just Mark alone. And And it's kind of a confusing phrase, a confusing word, because it's actually not a Greek word. Even though it's written in Greek, it's it's not a Greek word, and you can even see that here in the way this is translated, because Mark, as he's writing this to his readers, he says to whom he gave the name Boanergenes, and he's like, they're not going to know what that means, which means sons of thunder. He has to explain it even to his readers, because no one knows. It's, it's a transliteration of an Aramaic phrase that means sons of thunder. Ooh. Okay. So what does that sons of thunder mean? I don't know. No, no one is sure as to why Jesus gave these boys this name. Uh, but it, one theory, and, and I call it a theory, I think it's probably right, and I'll show you a couple of reasons why here in a moment. It, it may have had more to do, not with their booming voices, perhaps, but perhaps their booming personalities. Because you see, James and John act on their own two times in the Gospels, two times. And both times the brothers act on their own, like just them apart from the other, the other ten. They're not great scenes. The, the first one comes in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 to 56. And I'm just going to read it for us, and I'll stop and make comments along the way, and you'll see what's going on here pretty quickly. But in Luke nine fifty one, Luke writes that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's going for a feast, okay? He's going for one of the feasts at this point. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. And pause, if you're not aware of this, the Jews and the Samaritans don't get along too well. They don't like each other because hundreds of years prior, when when Israel had been taken into captivity, some of the Jews who remained in the land intermarried with some of the Gentiles who were brought into the area by, by these Babylonian and Assyrian kings. And so they had married them, they had children with them, and their their people now, the people that were left in the land, they were a mixed breed, half Jew, half Gentile. They were mongrels to the Jews' mind. And as mongrels, they were to be, to be rejected, to be avoided, to be ignored. And worse than their, their genealogical lineage is their theological lineage because they had taken the proper wa- worship of Yahweh And they had changed it to to fit them. And so rather than going to Jerusalem to worship God, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim. Rather than doing this, all the stuff that the law prescribed, they they came up with their own set of laws and rules. And so not only were they mongrels themselves, but but their religion was a mongrel religion, and the Jews hated them. And so if you're a good Jew, you don't go through Samaria, right? That's, That's the easy one. You just stay away from it. You go around it, you do something else, you just don't go through Samaria. Jesus uh, is not a good Jew, He's not. Because when he wants to travel, he goes through Samaria. That's the scene we see in John chapter 4 where he stops at the well and he has the audacity to ask a Samaritan woman if she will give him a drink of water. And the conversation that comes out of that scene leads to the salvation of a Samaritan village. Jesus shows kindness to the Samaritans, love for the Samaritans. He, he is there for the Samaritans. He's going to die for the Samaritans, just like he's going to die for us as well. So Jesus isn't a good Jew in their sense and, uh, of thinking, and he goes through Samaria, and as they're making their way through, he sends some messengers ahead into a Samaritan village to see if, if they can have a, a place to stay for the night. But the people, verse 53, did not receive him because, notice, his face is set toward Jerusalem. And that's an important comment because they know that he's going there for this feast. He's going there to worship God in Jerusalem. And because of their intense hatred of the Jews and everything related to their form of worship as well, they're like, nope, if you're going there, we're not helping. You're on your own if that's what you're doing. And so when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Because that's like the completely logical response to this scene. It's like you go up to the to the Motel Six and they're full, and you're like, "Oh, should I call down fire on them?" No, nah, I, you know, like it, we laugh at this because it sounds so stupid. But but understand that as they're saying this, they actually have a an Old Testament precedent in mind that happened actually very very close to where they're standing at this point. Because back in 2 Kings chapter 1, you have the story of Elijah who is being harassed by the, the king of Israel, the king of the north and, and uh, the northern kingdom. And he's coming to try to arrest him. And so he sends a group of soldiers, a, a, a group of 50 men to arrest Elijah who's sitting on top of a hill. And as they walk up there, they say, we're here to arrest you, Elijah. And Elijah says, oh, yeah, boom, Fire down from heaven, kills him. So, so the king sends another group, another 50 men same thing fire consumes them the third group comes and they're like please don't burn us up please come with us and he says okay I'll come with you now since you came nicely and they they go off okay this is probably the historical precedent this in James and John's mind is they're here in this area but, you know when when other people were disrespectful to and persecuting God's messenger God sent fire to consume them Now, here you are, Jesus, and and you've been disrespected by this village that we went to to try to find a place for you to spend the night because you're going to worship Yahweh in the right place and in the right way. Should we tell fire to come down from heaven and and consume them also? It's not a completely illogical statement when you understand their history, when you understand the, the background, where they're at, all these components together. It's an incredibly arrogant statement. Lord, should we do it? As if Jesus can't do it himself. If you're with Jesus, are you really asking to bring fire down on people? Like, is he not capable of that? But of course, Jesus' response to them is not what they were hoping for, I don't think. He turned and he rebuked them. How dare you? Jesus doesn't come to destroy, he says. He, he's here to bring life. He loves the Samaritans, unlike probably James and John at this point. Probably still very entrenched in their cultural way of thinking about this group of people. You would think they would have picked that up from his episode with the the woman at the well in John 4, but but somehow they missed it. And so he says, let's just just go to the next village. That's the obvious right answer, and so they do. And so in this scene where you see them acting together, you get a sense of maybe why they're referred to as the Sons of Thunder. Maybe it has something to do with this personality of, of just wanting to call fire down from heaven on people who are disrespectful to Jesus. I appreciate their, their heart perhaps in that, but it's not Jesus' heart. You, you see it perhaps again in the other scene where they act alone, and that's the one I referred to earlier, the scene where they come and ask to sit on either side of Jesus' throne, and that's Matthew 20, 20 to 29. says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? And she said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. And, and I'm not going to keep reading the story because it's long, and you're probably familiar with it. Instantly, all the other disciples are a little upset, right? Like, how dare they? Do you see what they're doing? And Jesus says, well, are they able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And, of course, James and John jump in. Yes, we're able to drink the cup. Whatever you're going to go through, we'll go through with you. Passionate, zealous, not holding anything back. And Jesus says, you will drink the cup, but it's not for me to give to sit on my right and left hand. That's for my Father in in heaven. And and it's interesting that, that when the other gospel writers record this same scene, they don't mention Salome doing this. They just mention it being James and John who come. Because ultimately it's about them. They're the ones who are doing this. They're probably the ones who are coming to their mom, like, "Hey, mom, we got a great idea. Can you go talk to Jesus? You're like the aunt. You're the more authoritative figure in the family. Why don't you go to Jesus and ask for this? And we'll be right behind you, like nodding, like that, right? Because we want this is what we want, Jesus. We want to sit right and left hand in your kingdom. and And so, when the other gospel writers recorded, they just simply blame them. They they ignore mom and blame the two who are probably the ones mainly behind it. And so when you, when you think of James and John, this is, when you see them in the Gospels acting, this is what you see. Just by themselves, on their own, this is what you see, and this may be why they're referred to in this way as, as sons of thunder. You'll see one other incident with John here in a moment that may also give you a taste of that, but that's him by himself. So that's what we know about the brothers together, the little bit that we know about them. Let me give you a couple things about them individually, and then we'll make a few observations. Regarding James... Did you realize there's only one time in in the New Testament where he's mentioned by himself, and it's the time he's killed? Here in Acts chapter 12, you read the story of the first of the apostles to be martyred. He's the first. In fact, he's the only apostle whose death is recorded in Scripture, and it's recorded here, Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It says, About that time, Herod the king uh, had violent, uh, excuse me, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews and made them happy, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the Days of Unleavened Bread. And then the story goes on from there. Of course, Peter doesn't die at this point, but, but James is the first one killed. And, and, and when you see about Herod here, this isn't the same Herod that killed Jesus. Or the same Herod that killed John the Baptist. That was, that was Herod uh, Antipas. This is Herod's nephew, Herod Agrippa I. And the question, again, is why kill James first? Like, why him? And, and it could be, as I've already indicated, that he's related to Jesus. I think that might be part of it. But if you've got a personality like James, I imagine you were probably a pain in the butt to everyone in Jerusalem at that point, okay? I, I could at least see that in, in thinking it through, how he might go about presenting the gospel, preaching the gospel, being bold with the gospel. He may not have made a lot of friends quickly. And when it came time for Herod to do the Jews a favor, he's the first one gone. So so I don't know which is true maybe it's a little bit of both but but James is the first one killed he's the only one whose death is recorded he did indeed drink the cup to to look at Jesus's words there to him in in Matthew 20 and Eusebius the the church historian who I keep reading to you and again remember folks that that church history is not inspired and it's hard to know what's true and what's not true sometimes and what's recorded. I'm not saying that these guys are actively lying, but they might hear stories from others who, and they record it, write it down, and we don't know for sure. So take all of the, the church history stuff you read from the past with a grain of salt, but I'll read you his record of James's death. Okay, This comes from Clement, he says. Clement says that the one who led James to the judgment seat when he saw him bearing his testimony was moved and confessed that he himself was also a Christian. So the guy, Clement says, who was leading James up to this uh, execution is himself a Christian. When he sees James James bearing his testimony, he confesses he is too. And they were both, therefore, he says, led away together. And on the way, he begged James to forgive him. I love this next line. And James, after considering a little, said, Peace be with thee and kissed him, and thus they were both beheaded at the same time. That's the, the record from church history of James's death, uh, maybe even a little bit of that son of thunder right to the end, but he, this is how Eusebius records his death. In regards to John, again, I won't belabor it because you know him a little better. John, of course, is the author of the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Revelation, and there's only one time, one time in the Gospels that you see John acting or speaking alone, and that's in Mark chapter 9. And in Mark chapter 9, just to give you the, the background of what's going on here, um, Jesus has just finished talking to them about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I think they were arguing about it, as they seem to do quite a bit. They're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says, unless you're the least, you you can't be the greatest unless you're like a child. you can't You can't be the greatest. And John, at this point, inserts this comment. And and I don't know if it's a confession, if John is, like, feeling convicted based on what Jesus has said, or if maybe he's defending himself because he knows he's done wrong. I, I don't really know, but this is what John says. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. The, the only time we see John acting on his own in the Gospels is when he's trying to stop someone from ministering in Jesus' name. One and only time. And Jesus, again, rebukes him for this. Why would you stop him? Why would you stop anyone from ministering in my name just because he's not with us? I mean, I, I get the sense that James and John are very loyal people. Very, I mean, that's kind of the little bit you pick up from the gospel accounts. But Jesus like, don't stop him. That, That's not the right way. Again, maybe that's another aspect of his personality. I don't know. What what happened to John? Well, you know a few of the things. He goes to Jesus' trial, right? We saw that. He, he's the only apostle at the cross. He, he takes Mary, and, and by most accounts, again, from church history, if these are valid, he doesn't leave Jerusalem until after her death. Like, he... He stays put to care for her. That's at least what's recorded. Eventually, he pastors the church in Ephesus, the one Paul started there. He went on to write five books of the New Testament. He's banished to Patmos, uh, an island, a prison colony, probably under the Roman Emperor Domitian. He's the only apostle not martyred, the only one. He he seems to just have died of old age, which means that these brothers that we've looked at today are the bookends on the apostles, the first and the last one to die, uh, under Jesus, in Jesus' service, and in time, he became known as the apostle of love. In fact, according again to church history, take a grain of salt here, there, these are some of his last words. It's recorded that at the end of his life, John was so frail that he had to be carried to, uh, by others in order to gather with the church there in Ephesus, and there was one phrase that they re- reported as being constantly on his lips, and it's this, my little children love one another. And asked why he said this, he replied, it is the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. And if you've been at Cornerstone for any length of time, you know what he's referring to there. One of my favorite passages, right? I've mentioned it dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the years. He's, He's referring to John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here Jesus is this, at the last supper. They're in the, they're in the room together. Judas has just left. The door has closed. And at this moment, the, this is the last opportunity that Jesus will have to speak to these men before the cross. And he can say anything he wants, right? like It's, it's open mic. He can say whatever he wants to them. And what does he say to them? A the new commandment I give you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You're to love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And and we've looked at that time and time and time again, that the supreme mark of Christian discipleship is not being a part of a church, and it's not reading your Bible, and it's not sharing your faith, and it's not praying. That the supreme mark of being a disciple of Jesus is loving one another the way he has loved us. And so it's not just a a sentimental love that he commands us to pursue here. It's a redemptive love. It's a love like he loved us with. And when you think of that word redemptive love, I just wrote down three things. I'll give them to you quickly because my time is done. Redemptive love is gracious, right? Because it's not dependent on what we've done to earn or deserve it. Because Jesus loved us while, while, while we were still sinners. He died for the ungodly. Not after we got everything fixed. While. So, so redemptive love is gracious. Redemptive love is generous because it doesn't seek to do the least amount possible. It gives all. So when God so loved us, what did he give? The least he could? He gave his son to die for us. Redemptive love is godly because of that, because God is love. Who told us that, right, John? God is love. Jesus didn't tell us to love as best we could. He's told us to love like him. He is the, the standard, the bar we have to meet. And in loving one another and those around us, it's this kind of gracious, generous, godly love that we are to give evidence to in order to show the world that we are disciples of Jesus. And so, as James and John, the sons of thunder, these passionate, zealous followers of Jesus, as they had to learn, love has to trump all. Love, Love needs to tenderize passion and zeal. And love needs to give some backbone to those who are cowardly. It's because we have been greatly loved by Christ that we then turn around and love one another and those around us. And so, That's what we learn from these boys, these sons of thunder with all their warts and failures and faults that we need to pursue love more than all. Will you bow your heads? Jesus, thank you for teaching us what real love looks like. It's amazing that the same man who wanted to call down fire from heaven on a city people who rejected you who who wanted to stop others from from ministering because they weren't part of of the group would later turn around and so embrace this idea that you spoke there on that last night on earth that love would be enough you are love that this is this is why we love i think of all those passages we studied years ago in in first john 4 when we were going through that book together lord i he became the apostle of love, and that's not to his credit, that's to yours. And as as I think of Cornerstone and us, I, Lord, I, I just ask and pray that you will take this church and that you will make us a church known for our love, for one another and for, for those around us, not a, a sentimental love that just is trying to be kind and nice. That's not what you've called us to. You've called us to this redemptive love. Love that that isn't dependent on whether people deserve it or not, and it's not just seeking to do the least amount possible. It's seeking to give everything, because it's like your love. And so, so Lord, please, please, in my heart, and my families, and in, in this church, and everybody in here, please, by your Spirit, work in us to to. Build that fruit of the Spirit in our lives so that it spills out to everyone around us and that the people in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces can see that we really are your disciples. And so we thank you, Lord, for your word, for its power. Please change us through it in Jesus' name. Amen.